morning, FPC family and friends. You know when the light is breaking over the horizon that the dawn is coming. You know it. You just have a strong sense of assurance. You know when your grandmother smiles at you with that twinkle in her eye that she loves you. Can you have the same kind of assurance of faith? This morning, let's talk about that. Whether you're in the room or at home, welcome to worship. Good morning. We're so glad you've joined us this morning at FPC. Um, if you're in the room, we welcome you. If you're online, we welcome you. And uh, we're just excited to worship with you all this morning. And as you all know, we're gathered here together to worship the King of Kings. Hallelujah. Come on. He's the one who set us free. So we're going to sing about that this morning. Let's stand together for this first song.
from chapter 4 of Ephesians. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness.
Please be seated. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? Dear Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for blessing us with this day, for the rain that will nourish the earth, for the time that you give us to be with our loved ones, and for the opportunity to gather together to worship you. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of your love for us. Help us to put off our old selves, to replace our boasting and selfish ambition with humility and gentleness, to replace our insistence on having our desires met right now with patience and a genuine desire for your will to be done, and to replace our expectations to be first with a selfless love as Christ loves us, that we might be one in the Holy Spirit and imitators of you. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins. It's in his name that we pray the prayer he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, it's a privilege this morning to, uh, to have a baptism. Wilder Woodward is here. Well, his parents brought him. Uh, Amy, and, <laughs> Amy and Brooks are his parents, and they've got a scad of family with them, around them. We've got uh, Jimmy and Penny Woodward and the grandparents, and uh, Thomas and Susan Ford, and then some great-grands, uh, Pam and Ron Barnett. Uh, elder this morning uh, is uh, Harry T. Jones, who will join me at the baptismal font along with the parents. All right, so let me take this boy right here. Let's see. Come here, Wilder. Hey, buddy. All right. Can you come around this way? Can you st- sit like that? Man, that's kind of sophisticated there. Good. You've got, got a nice little thing there. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll chill. Well, why do we baptize babies? It's always good for us to talk about that again and remind ourselves what baptism really is. You know, in First John it says this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. God loves you already. I mean, even more than your parents. We can't even imagine how much they love you. God loves you before you can love him. In the same way, you're just growing to love your parents. So, will you grow to love God? And it's his love that brings you to life, Woodward. I mean, uh, Wilder. You know, I always talk to you, uh, I always talk to these babies like they understand, right? But we're really talking to each other. We're talking to ourselves. Because every time we baptize a baby, we remember our own life from death to life. That's, 
That's what the waters of baptism do for us. It's an outward sign, an outward sign of an inward spiritual covenant. So as Wilder has water on his head this morning, we anticipate, as John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but one comes after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with fire. And so the outward sign this morning, Wilder, is the sign and seal that you belong to Christ and that he is at work in you long before you can respond to him. All right, Amy. Actually, let me just keep it. Let's see if I'm kind of liking this. I know that at any moment I can give him back, and that <laughs> gives me comfort and peace. <laughs> well, show your intent this day, Brooks and Amy, by responding to these questions. You've asked to have Wilder baptized. In doing so, you accept the call to encourage him in faith that he may come to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, growing to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you understand what it is you're taking on today? Do you? All right. Let's give him back to you for just a second. (laughs) He's showing signs. Showing outward signs of inward discontent. I don't blame you. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, broken and in need of reconciliation with God, do you? I do. do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel, do you? I do. And do you acknowledge the same need for Wilder of the saving grace of God, which is at work in us long before we can respond to it, do you? I do. And do you unreservedly commit Wilder to the Lord and yourselves to the spiritual leadership of your household that you'll pray with him and for him and do all that is within your power to lay before him a godly example do you I do Harry T Jones will charge you the church family this morning do you the members of this family that's all of you this church family representing the larger family of God, commit yourselves to encourage Wilder in his faith as you have the opportunity to pray for him and to affirm the fruit of his life emerging from from faith, whether near or far. If so, please respond joyfully. We do. All right. Wilder, come back. What's the Christian name you've given your son? Wilder Thomas Woodward. Wilder Thomas Woodward. You're a child of the covenant. And I joyfully today baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. May blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, also, he's at peace. I love it. Harry T. will charge, will actually pray for us now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for blessing Wilder with Amy and Brooks, his mother and father, for surrounding him with family and church family who love and adore him and commit to a lifetime of nurturing in Christ.
Good morning, boys and girls. Our story today takes place not long after Jesus had gone back to heaven to be with the Father. His disciples had taken his message very seriously and they were going throughout the land preaching the good news of Jesus. And the only way to be saved was to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, there were some religious leaders around that time who didn't like this message at all. They knew the law and they knew the Old Testament, but they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said that he was. And one of the lead guys in this was Saul. Saul hated the new church. Saul hated Christians. In fact, he was going around threatening them and bullying them, even saying he might kill them if they didn't stop preaching the name of Jesus. Well, I wondered how any good could come from somebody like old Saul. But God, God always has a way you see, with God, all things are possible. One day, Saul was on his way to a town called Damascus. He was going to shake up another church that was meeting in the name of Jesus. And Jesus met Saul right there on that road. He stopped him in his tracks. With a bolt of light, Saul was thrown to the ground and he was blinded. But in that moment, he heard the voice of Jesus calling to him from heaven. And that very day, Saul's entire life was changed. He became a follower of Jesus. He repented of his sins. He turned his life around. The change in this man was so great that his name even changed from Saul to Paul. Saul, who had persecuted the Church of Christ, became one of the greatest disciples and missionaries for the Church of Christ. And that's something only God can do. God loves you, and so do I. Good morning. Welcome to FPC. Whether you're here in person or watching us online, we just want to welcome everyone. Uh, I want to point out some things that are in the bulletin this morning, uh, a couple things that aren't. Um, the first thing is uh, the Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. If you're new here, uh, if you're wanting to get uh, more information about our church, uh, please fill that out. If you're watching online, you can go to the FPC website and click the I'm New Here link and fill out the information there. That'll give us a way to send you uh, the, uh, the pulse that comes out a couple times a week just to let you know what's going on here at FPC. Um, one important thing I do want to point out, if you got an officer nomination form when you came in, or if you did not, please grab one on your way out. They're in the basket on the kiosk back there. We are taking officer nominations starting this week for the class of 2024. And uh, we'd really like for you to pray about that. Uh, if there's someone on your heart here that's a member of FPC that you'd like to see uh, as a deacon or an elder, uh, this is your opportunity to let uh, the nominating committee know. Um, I also wanted to point out that Vacation Bible School is on the horizon. Uh, there's a little note here in the, in the bulletin about that. That'll be 
July 19th through 22nd here at the church. So if uh, you're making summer plans, which many of you probably are now that we're getting into the, the, the last few weeks of the school year, um, please put that on your calendar, and uh, we hope to see you and your children at Vacation Bible School. And now for the most important announcement, and I, I say that with tongue-in-cheek, um, but I noticed a lot of our fishermen are not here this morning. There's a fish fry. Uh, to, it's a fundraiser to help uh, raise funds for the youth mission trip to Yakima this, uh, this uh, summer. And the fish fry is this coming Sunday, a week from today, uh, here at the church from 5.30 to 7. And I guess a lot of our fishermen are out diligently trying to catch fish so that you'll have plenty to eat on that Sunday afternoon. So please make a note of that. Please be here. Um, the Yakima uh, Reservation is a, is a mission that we've supported for many years. Uh, we've sent several teams, mission teams there over the years, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And I think it's going to be fantastic for our youth to be a part of that. Um, the church calendar is also in the bulletin. Please take note of uh, what's going on this week and then beyond. And if you'll bow your heads, I'd like to pray now uh, for our tithes and our offerings. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet in this world. Bless our gifts now as we give back to you what has always been yours in the first place. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
Father, we know that you're already here. You don't need to be invited, but we invite you anyway, Father. We say, come in this place. Do something fresh in our hearts. Speak to us this morning, God, by your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Hear God's word this morning. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying on his hands, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately 
Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, then rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. May God add his blessing today to it. Let's pray. Holy God, bless this word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our hands and feet we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, in college and then just shortly after college, I started hearing the same story. People would ask me, um, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm a Christian? And what is the, the sign and seal of it? And uh, what is there a particular experience that I must have? Is there a point in time that I must dedicate myself to Christ in order to know that I'm a Christian? In other words, does everyone have to have this kind of Damascus Road experience to validate their faith? How do you have assurance of faith? Is it necessary to have this kind of dramatic conversion experience in order to have assurance of faith? Well, according to Paul himself, who had that experience, the answer is no. The answer is no. This is what he says to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy. He says this, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Sometimes faith comes to us as a lightning strike. Sometimes it's, it, it's embers that need to be fanned into flame. Sometimes it's a poisonous tree that needs to be chopped down. Sometimes it's a mustard seed that grows quietly, silently, under the ground at first. And then, as Jesus uses that illustration, the smallest seed that they knew at the time in, in agriculture, then takes over, you know, the way mint takes over, right? If you plant mint in your garden, it, your, your garden's gone. Mint will I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's this, this smallest to biggest kind of image that Jesus is working with. And it begins, it begins with the nurturing of the faith, grandmother, mother, son, in this case. Sometimes it comes to us as a lightning strike. Sometimes they're embers that need to be fanned into flame. Well, if you're one of those where the embers have been sort of, uh, you know, just sort of percolating from your youth, and, and at times, you know, a gust has come along and, and has flamed them up, and you've had sort of a grace awakening, you know, is that, sometimes people will want to say, well, that's the time I became a Christian, and they want to validate their faith through some kind of experience. Is that necessary? I think throughout the course of our lives that grace is always working on us, and that's, that's one of the ways that we know. But what is, what is the, the assurance that we have? How do we know that our faith is sincere? And the answer is the theme of the day. The answer is freedom. Freedom. When you have an increasing sense of freedom in your life, in a couple of different ways, then you know 
that that mustard seed is growing and taking over. A couple of different ways. First of all, we need to have, in order to have assurance, you and I need to be free from inflation, free from puffing ourselves up, free from worrying so much about what others think of us that we don't, we, that, that, that we're free not to blow ourselves up or puff ourselves up with pride, puff ourselves up. Verse 1, it says this, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Did somebody call him and say, hey, hey Paul, can you uh, go for us? And Paul took the initiative. I mean, Saul at that time took the initiative. Why? Obviously, he had something to prove. It's like the burden of proof. You know, when you're in an argument and, uh, and, and somebody is, keeps shifting and, and, and saying, well, you prove your point, right? That's a burden. Paul was burdened. He wasn't free. Paul had the burden of proof. He was trying to prove himself, right? Worried about what others thought about him. Always, you know, very much jot and tittle uh, about his own pedigree and about his own training. He even goes on to, to talk about how, how he was trained by Gamaliel that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the, one, of, one of the stars of the day who, who, uh, who, who had the most respect and, and gravitas of, of anyone in, in Jerusalem. Paul was ambitious. Why? He was puffing himself up. He was worried about what others thought about him. He was trying to prove himself, right? Now, it's kind of like this, a little balloon. Pride. Pride is full of what? Not a lot. Not much. You get nervous, aren't you? You should. You should. This is you on pride, right? Remember that? Is your brain on drugs? This is you on pride, right? Puffing yourself up. You say, well, Tim, you know, sometimes people are just really talented or kind of smug, entitled. They don't really seem insecure. They don't seem like they have anything to prove. I mean, a rocket science, a rocket scientist can be, or a rock star can be, you know, very arrogant. Ah, yeah. But look at it. Look at it more closely. Is that really confident? If you're puffing yourself up, you're kind of fragile, aren't you? I mean, if, if your whole... Identity and security rest on, on your talent, one talent in particular? Are you secure? No, you're always having to prove yourself. Always having to blow in more air. Always having to puff yourself up. Next time you're around somebody who's very arrogant, just picture this. This is what they're dealing with. This is their identity. This is the threat Paul was trying to prove himself. And then, as he reflects in Acts 22 and Acts 26, upon this whole experience, somehow, in his transformation, he's no longer worried about what others think about him. He says this in, ver- in, in, in chapter 22. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. I studied under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way as the high priest, the council themselves can testify. And then he goes on, he says, but about at noon, as I went, as I went to near Damascus, and he tells the story. He tells the story. 
Well, he knows he's facing an adverse crowd. Why would he do that? People don't give up power. Have you noticed that? People don't give up power. I mean, we're dealing with some of that today. Any of the, the power that, 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 that anybody has given to anyone during this past year, it's very difficult to, for them to let go of it. People don't give up power. Verse 22 of, of uh, Acts 22, Paul is reflecting on this, and the crowd listening to Paul says this, Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. All of a sudden, Paul, Saul to Paul, Paul, no longer worried about what people think about him, no longer puffed up. Before King Agrippa, in in Acts 26, he goes on, he says, at this point, Festus, who was sort of the governor of Judah, and uh, Agrippa was over the whole region, and Paul is talking before him, speaking before him, as testified in Acts chapter 9, that he would be able to do that. Festus says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you insane. (laughs) Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. What boldness, just to lay it out there. This is who I was, and this is who I am. And this is my testimony. Whether you, whether you receive it or not, this is who I am. You see, he's free. He's set free from the worry and the concern about what others think about him. Set free from being defined by it, at least. I mean, we all have concerns. We all want to present ourselves well. But, 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 but to have your identity and your security hinge upon what others think of you, he was free from that free from that. It's evidence of a life, of a mustard seed, of embers being fanned in flame. But we need to be free not only from what others think of us, but maybe more of what we think of ourselves, don't we? I mean, aren't we our own worst critic? We need to be free of deflation, not just inflation, but deflation, right? We need to be free from the self-talk where we run ourselves down. Verse 15, it says this, that Paul is my, Saul is my chosen instrument. See what, this is the hinge of this whole passage. Here is God speaking into, over, over Paul's life, and Paul is believing it. Paul is no longer concerned about what he's saying to himself, all his self-talk. It, it, it's no longer what What he thinks about himself, he's believing and trusting in what God thinks about him. He's now, he now has an identity rooted and grounded, not in what he has said and done, but in what God has said and done. You know, in 1 Timothy 1.15, it says, "I, I am the chief of sinners. Does that sound like somebody who's running himself down? I mean, this is often, you know, people who don't have an experience of grace think, well, gosh, you know, these Christians are sure down on themselves. I mean, they're always repenting of stuff. They're always apologizing. They're always sort of, you know, sort of calling themselves sinners. And, you know, here's, here's Paul saying, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Does this sound like somebody who lacks confidence? What, what is that? What's going on there? He's no longer identifying with what 
he thinks about himself, about what he's said and done or thought. He's believing in what God says and has done. You know, it really reminds me of one of my favorite stories, and I've, I've tried and tried to find, track down the, uh, the veracity of this story, the source of this story. It's, it's something I've, I've held on to for probably 30 years or more. And it's a story from the Polish underground. I think the Warsaw Uprising. There are a lot of uh, different, um, in, the world, in World War II, there were a lot of different sort of underground movements to undermine the Nazis. You know what an underground movement is. It's, it's, this, um, it, it, it's information that, that's, that's being communicated uh, behind the lines and then to the Allied forces to undermine uh, the enemy. And, uh, and in Warsaw, there was one particular group of, 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 of um, detractors from, from, from the, the Nazis who had all kinds of information. And, and the Nazis, under Himmler, Himmler found out uh, and, and had a, a group of people find out all these, this information about these leaders of this movement, this underground movement. And they found out this information so that they could shame them and break them. And you know what? For the most part, it worked. But there was one guy. There was one guy who was a Christian. And he was sitting under that naked light bulb in that smoke-filled back room, hearing all these horrible things that they dug up on him, all the dirt that they dug up on him. Most of it, many, much of it true, Right? And instead of being broken by it, instead of being shamed and controlled by it, and this was a very effective method, you know, just shaming somebody and shaming somebody until they break, and then you give them whatever they want of you. He looked back into the face of his accusers, and he said, you don't know the half of it. I think that is just one of the best things I've ever heard. You don't know the half of it. That's somebody who's been set free from what he thinks of himself. That's somebody who can stand up and say, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. And I, I'd be glad to, to fight you for that title because that doesn't define me anymore. It's no longer what I think or have done or said that defines me. It's what God thinks of me that defines me. John Newton was a slave trader. John Newton wrote uh, Amazing Grace, one of, uh, one of our all-time favorites. Most people's all-time favorite in the church. But he also said this. He had become a Christian. He had sold his ships. He had repented. But he said this. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Paul, there he is. Paul had persecuted the church. Last week, we, we, we talked about Stephen and how Stephen was, was, was stoned to death, right? And Paul stood by and said, Paul, Saul, really, at that time, Saul stood by watching and approving, right? Approving imagine being that person and then and then now trying to live with that trying to live with that how do you live with something like that how do you live with being a, a slave trader like john newton how do you how do you overcome that he says this i'm not what i ought to be john newton says i'm not what i ought to be i'm not what i want to be i'm not what i hope to be in another world but still i'm not what i once used to be by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, for the rest of this message, we're going we're gonna to focus there for just a minute. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, you, you know now how important it is that, that, that what accompanies grace 
is freedom from what other people think of you. Freedom from having to puff yourself up and hide behind your titles, or hide behind uh, your, your pedigree, or hide, hide behind your accomplishments, right? Puff, 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 right? You know how powerful it is to be able to say, to, to be able to know that your own accusations thrown back at you and to be able to say, you don't know the half of it. So if that's what we're freed from, what are we free for? You can't just turn away. You have to have something to turn towards, right? What are we free for? Well, we're free for the grace of God. Not grace plus a bunch of other stuff, but grace and more grace. Grace and more grace. You see, this is the scandal. And some people would say this. They say, you know what? That's not enough. Grace is not enough. You know, that's just letting people off the hook. And, uh, and so, uh, you, you know, it, we go in a, a few different directions in, with this uh, because people get nervous about this. They, they don't feel like, well, that's not enough to assure somebody that, they're, that, they're, that their salvation is secure. And people think in these terms, they think, how do you get to heaven instead of how does heaven get to you? That is not Christianity. How do I get to heaven is religion. Christianity is heaven gets to us. But nevertheless, people are fixated on getting to heaven. And so what they do is they say, well, grace isn't enough, so we have to add something to it. And here are three basic things that, that people add to, to grace in order to, to give themselves a, a human sense of assurance that they're okay. First is just think more. Just think more. That means uh, maybe you, you have had some kind of experience or maybe you've had some kind of commitment, but do you really know? Do you really know? Do you have... Have you really uh, understood the five points of Calvinism? Have you? Have you? Have you? Have you? I'm a four and a half pointer myself, but uh, I'll tell you about that later. It's another sermon. But but there are people, and and sometimes they, they you know we, we sort of label people like like this. But these are people who say you know you you may be reformed, but are you truly reformed? Are you truly reformed? Do you really have all these doctrines down? Because if you don't, I, I'm not sure that you, you may be a goat Meh. instead of a, a sheep. I mean, and, and we begin to, to, to herd sheep from the goats because, well, you don't quite understand the ordo salutis, okay, the order of salvation. You don't quite understand it. You don't quite, you don't quite uh, measure up to the full uh, understanding of these doctrinal truths. All, all 15 of them or all 18 of them or all 613 of them. What does that sound like? Well, that starts to sound like the Pharisees, doesn't it? And so they add truth to grace. Now, grace and truth are important. Of course they are. But they add doctrine to grace in a way that says, if you don't have all these things just right, hmm, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't be assured of your salvation. Just think more. Another tradition would say this, just do more. You know what? You're going to carry around guilt, and so here's how you deal with it. Just do more. You know, service projects. Do, do, do all kinds of nice things for people, a lot of good deeds, you know? I mean, you, you've got some guilt, and you, if you've got a lot of guilt, then you need a lot of good deeds, right, to sort of balance that out, right? And you think, well, isn't that, isn't that what Jesus came to get us away from? Well, yes, but religion comes creeping back in. It comes creeping back in, and it's very subtle when it makes its little, uh, its little invitations. It's like, well, you know... You know, it, it's fine. It, 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 the, the problem is, is that uh, you love to sin, and, 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 and you have this attitude of, you love to sin, God loves to forgive. What a deal. 
right? I love to sin. God loves to forgive. What a deal, right? And this is sort of the, this is sort of the, the cultural Christianity that the moralists begin to try to call out. So they say, well, you know, this is cultural Christianity. Grace alone is just cultural Christianity. And so you have to do more. You see how it comes creeping in? It's like you call into question the grace of God that it's not powerful enough or something like that. And, and you begin to say, well, that's just an attitude towards, towards sin. That's just sort of permission to keep doing worse so that sin may abound, so that grace may abound. And so they say, well, we've got to add something to it. Just do more, right? And that's where moralism begins to creep in. And in an effort to distinguish Christianity from cultural Christianity, where it's just a name only, like, well, I just sort of grew up as a Christian, and I'm not sure really what all this stuff means, but I'm a Christian because I live in a Christian culture. I'm an American, you know. Uh, I like Elvis. I like apple pie. I like, I like Christianity. I'm a Christian. And, and, and so people say, well, we need to distinguish ourselves from that. So it's grace plus these doctrinal points. Just do more. Well, that's just think more. Or grace plus these good deeds to balance things out. To, to show that your behavior is really changing, you've got you've to get some help. You've got to get some help, right? But see, here, here's the thing. Here's where we're going. The gospel of grace is not primarily guidance. It's news. It's not good guidance for better living. It's good news about Someone who already lives and lives for you. You see the difference? The first one says, well, you know, um, yeah, Jesus did all this stuff and, and grace is nice and I, I'm sort of freed from my original sin and all that kind of stuff. But, but now, sanctification, you know, sort of growing in, in grace and all that kind of stuff, that, that's up to me, right? Hmm. This is where religion begins to peek back in instead of the good news of the gospel of grace right we begin to take good advice that says okay jesus did a lot but i guess i got to do some too right not that jesus paid it all all to him i owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow no it's more jesus did a lot i guess I, i ought to do some and so out of a sense of fear, out of a sense of guilt, religion begins to peek back into this new relationship. But see, the gospel, the gospel is about news. Not advice, not guidance, not counsel. The gospel is news, good news. And so when we go back to it, you say, well, Tim, that's it? That's it? That sounds a little bit like what you were saying earlier. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. This is a great deal. You know, it sounds a little bit like cultural Christianity. That's it? Well, see, here, here's what it comes down to. When you truly do, when that mustard seed gets in, when you truly do experience the grace of God at your worst, then don't you think you're going to want it in the rest? If you experience it in the worst place, the darkest place, if you trust Christ and the grace of God for your worst, and you experience a sense of freedom from that, isn't there a new motivation for grace to continue to find its way into every nook and cranny of your life? Absolutely. That is exactly called Christianity. That's what grace does. It gives you a new self. It, it changes the relationship. You know, we, I've been talking throughout this series about 
disordered love as being sort of, uh, that's Augustine's definition of sin. Not just missing the mark, not just doing bad stuff, but the reason why we do bad stuff is because we love stuff more than the stuff maker. We love the giver, the gifts more than the giver. But when you begin to love the giver, especially of the greatest gift of grace, that reordered relationship, don't you think that if you're relationship with God is reordered, that it's going to have an effect on the rest of your relationships? Absolutely. That's why Jesus said, what's the, be- what, what, what's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you begin to reorder, when grace begins to find you at your worst, of course it's going to make its way into the rest. And in making its way into the rest, in freeing you from just try harder, just think more, just do more, just feel more, in being free from that burden of proof to other people and to yourself, in being free from that, grace begins to reorder your relationships too. And guess what that looks like? It looks like you're getting better. It looks like what John Newton was saying a minute ago, not what I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let me illustrate this in closing with this illustration of, of, of a jazz band. You know, we've been talking about this thing called overture the whole time. And, and this is really what it comes down to. These different themes that in a broken world that still echo with eternity, right? The goblet that, that, that you hit the right note and it resonates with something beautiful, right? Something true. Something, something freeing, right? And that goblet re- resonates with it, but then it shatters because in this broken world, we cannot hold these things, and yet we have some sense that they are present with us, right? This is one of those themes, freedom. Freedom in the most important places of security and identity, right? And so you think of that jazz band. You think, well... Isn't freedom just the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want? To do whatever I want, whenever I want? No. See, if, if, if you have the ability, uh, you know, high schooler, if you have the ability to take your smartphone into your room at night when, when it really should be plugged in down in the kitchen, that's a hint, parents, by the way. If you, that's free, just free hint. Um, if you have the ability to take that into your room and you're just scrolling and scrolling all night long, you have the freedom to do that. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to become slave to your phone. You're going to become a slave. You, you find freedom in one place, you're going to be bound in another place. When you come, become bound to the gospel of grace, guess what? You become free in ways that you were designed to be. Eternity begins to speak to your heart, you see? You begin to find that the embers become fanned into flame. You begin to find that that mustard seed begins to grow. Well, what about the jazz band? Well, you see... A jazz band, it sounds like they're doing whatever they want, whenever they want, doesn't it? You know, maybe they're playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and then you start thinking, where did Somewhere Over the Rainbow go, right? It's like, oh, it's like, you know, and you have no idea what's happening. But then they come back to it, and the theme kind of emerges again. And you know, it's the very theme that gives them the freedom to, 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 to go and roam and, and, and to improvise. You see, when we're constrained, it's, it's like what, what somebody said. If you are slave to the compass, you can have the freedom of the sea. And that's grace. Because the whole idea here of Christianity is not, not that we have a set of rules and regulations and burdens to try to get us to heaven. 
not, not a Bible of, of rules and, and, and counsel and guidance and advice for how to do it better, how to think more, how to feel more, how to do more. But we have a gospel of grace, of news that already happened. And when you trust in it, when you consign yourself and confine yourself and bind yourself to that story, he write, rewrites your entire story. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you that by grace we've been saved through faith. This not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast or be puffed up or even deflated. For we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that you planned in advance for us to do. Lord, help us to fan into flame the gift of God and not miss the gift of God, which is the grace of God. In Jesus' name. together as we sing this. Cast my mind. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree.
right, besides grace, how about a final good word? That's what a benediction is. Would you bow your heads? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance towards you. Be gracious unto you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen.